Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up? This is your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. When we think about fire, and we do think about fire a lot on this show, it's come up time and time again. <laughs> Wait, are, are you confessing something <laughs> that we that we love fire, that we worship fire, yeah. that we delight in its um, its growth and its consumption? Um, no, uh, but it, it must is, be fed. Yeah, it must be fed. But it is a, an important aspect of of Earth. You know, uh, as we've discussed in, on past episodes, you know, Earth is the only planet known to have fire, and there was a time when there was no fire on Earth because it was possible yet. Um, you know, fire, when we think about fire, we think about its fleeting nature, but also its potential, its tremendous power, uh, provided conditions are just right. Um, it's uh, it's always interesting to think about how fire is in many ways more an, an event than a thing. You, and for it to happen, you need heat, fuel, and oxygen. And the fuel and the oxygen were not always present on our planet. Uh, fire is, is more or less an aspect of the new earth. And the earliest evidence of charred vegetation dates back a mere 440 million years. Right. So today, natural forest fires are just part of the cycle of life on the surface of Earth. But there was a time when Earth had its first forest fire. Can you imagine mm-hmm. that? Like the first time that ever happened? Yeah, yeah. It's crazy to imagine. And so you know, this is this has been an, an aspect of life on, on Earth ever since. 
Um, and yeah, with, with fire, it, it's interesting too, because there's this trifecta, obviously, that's necessary for it to exist. Um, but it is a delicate tripod. Remove one of the legs of the fire tripod and the fire will perish. Uh, so yeah, our relationship with fire is sometimes like, whoa, this is out of control. And other times it is, uh, you know, I, I can't get this thing to light at all. Um, you know, so I think we're all familiar with that, with the dual nature of fire. Uh, so for today's episode, and this will uh, spill into, into the next episode as well, I thought we might start with just a, a, what I thought was just a really tantalizing question because I'd never really thought about it before, not, in, not until you brought up um, this topic, and that is, what is the longest that a single fire has raged? Uh, and I guess you know, there are all sorts of sort of artificial parameters we might throw in, you know, what constitutes a single fire versus multiple f- fires spread out over time. Uh, I, I guess we kind of have to take the, the human scenario of like a, a hearth uh, or a campfire and imagine that as sort of our, our basic principle, like a single a single flame that keeps eating things, keeps consuming, maybe it moves. Uh, but what is the longest that, that such a fire has raged without snuffing out completely and having to be reset uh, one way or another? Great question. Yeah. So, of course, now you know the answer, and, and I, that I know the answer to now. But, but uh, if, putting ourselves in the mindset of someone who, who doesn't know the answer, you might likely turn to a few different categories to start off. And the first would be what we just talked about, forest fires. Um, so yeah, as, as long as we've had forests and fire, uh, this has been a possibility here on earth. Uh, many of the worst forest fires in history though, are measured in terms of acres, destruction and fatality rather than in time. Uh, but if you dig, dig down, you, you, you can start seeing some, some timestamps on things. Many of the worst are dated to just a single day in human history. Um, others last longer, though some of these consist of multiple blazes, so it becomes perhaps a little more of a challenge to think of a continuous fire in these cases, uh, though in, in many of the cases I think it does fit. Some wildfire seasons, of course, span many months, and then you have uh, you have particular fires that have uh, raged for a period of time. There's the uh, Coyote Fire of 1964 in Santa Barbara, California, which lasted from September 1st to October 1st. So it seems we might, th- if we're thinking about um, about modern forest fires, we're going to probably look at something lasting days, months. Um, uh, somewhere in that range. Now, as for wildfires of yesteryear, as well as blazes caused by prehistoric extinction events, I, uh, I couldn't find many stats on this, but I suppose it's worth thinking about. Uh, but it's also worth thinking about the, the fact that when you have a particularly large energetic fire, uh, it can ultimately become something in, in entirely different. It can become this, this fire storm, which creates and sustains its own wind system. So, uh, I mean, I guess that's one of the reasons when we, we start looking at some of these big blazes, they do tremendous damage. They can cover a, a, a pretty large uh, um, area. But they're still not lasting that long in time because they're just eating through all of that fuel in, in a relatively short period of time. And of course, with, when we're talking about wildfires, we also have to think about the fact that uh, you know the, the human uh, uh, civilization has a has an impact as well on just uh, how wildfires will play out through a given forest scenario. Uh, you know, and, and to a certain extent, you know, we've we've been able to to jump in with. Um, with orchestrated burns, control burns to try and uh, uh, simulate sort of the natural cycle of fires that would normally occur. 
Um, but another area where you have to factor in human civilization is, of course, when you're dealing with urban fires, uh, where the, the trees and various other aspects of the natural world have been remade into an artificial environment, a city. And then what happens when that catches fire? Uh, well, I think a lot of the same practicalities are involved here as well. Some of the great fires to ravage cities uh, are often measured to a single date and, and, and time. Um, though there are some exceptions, there's the uh, there's the 146 BCE burning of Carthage, which reportedly took 17 days, but this was also said to be a systematic burning of the city by the Romans, so I'm not sure if that would count. Uh, so much uh, because it was it was one of these situations, obviously, where the Romans are like, let's burn the city down. Let's make sure everything burns through. Mm-hmm. There are some other fires that are uh, that are worth mentioning. There's the Great Fire of Utrecht uh, in the Netherlands that lasted nine days, reportedly, in 1253. There's the 1889 First Great Fire of Lynn, Massachusetts, reportedly lasted two weeks, destroying lo- roughly 100 buildings. So it looks like if we were going to say, look to the world of like urban fires for some sort of a a candidate for longest fire, you're going to be looking at something in the realm of days to weeks. Mm -hmm. But figures beyond that seem kind of doubtful. All right. The the next area to think about, though, would be, of course, human sustained fires. Uh, What about situations in which a human cultivated flame, a flame that's kept and fed more or less like a pet, either for technological purposes, say like a forge or a a pilot light, or something that's more religious or secular uh, uh, or a secular symbol in nature, you know, something like a holy fire that's kept going or some sort of a a monument that has an eternal flame hooked up to it. I I was shocked to discover how many monuments there are that have so-called eternal flames on Mm -hmm. them. Because I, I don't know, maybe it's just uh, my morbid brain, but it seems like calling a flame eternal is just tempting the fates. Like you, you know, yeah. this is not this flame will not burn forever. It's like settle down. You can't call it eternal. I was trying to think what you should call it instead. I, I can't come up with anything. I don't know. Maybe the the long burning flame or something, or the <laughs> attempted eternal flame. It's just eternal is not going to happen. Right. Yeah. I mean, I guess. I mean, and to a certain extent, I guess this is obvious. Like they're getting into the idea of like the fire is something that is. That can go out and it has to be cultivated, and you know a lot of these are tied to to causes and memories with the with the idea of saying like hey let's 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 make a point of remembering this individual or remembering this cause um, and uh, and we'll use the fire as a symbol uh, but um, but but yeah the, the, there have been a number of these that that have sprung up uh, just at the end of the twentieth century and and even you know in the twenty first century. And, uh, and and it's also and it's certainly with the older ones it it gets more difficult to to really figure out okay has this been a truly a perpetual eternal fire or has it gone out uh, at least once if not multiple times over the span of time that is attributed to it. I'm sorry that Roger Corman is invading my brain right now, but I'm thinking of a line in Attack of the Crab Monsters where the giant psychic crab, uh, they're <laughs> assaulting it with uh, with different types of weapons. The humans are trying to defeat it, and at some point they use a fire-based weapon, and the crab counters by telling them, uh, he says something like, that was quick thinking, Dale, but the pity is that all fires must one day burn out. <laughs> true, it's true. Um, oh, but by the way, more... Uh, Fairly recently, someone was asking, I think, in the Discord for Stuff to Blow Your Mind, what are all the episodes in which Joe has mentioned Attack of the, the Crab Monsters? Uh, 
no one had a, a clear answer, but a few uh, a, a few episodes were brought up in, in which people remembered you you mentioning it. We'll add this to the list. Okay. Uh, so, uh, out of the various examples that come up, uh, one that I thought was pretty interesting is that of the the Dasho Inn Temple Complex in Japan that has a flame that is said to have been burning for about twelve hundred years. Obviously, it's impossible to say 100% uh, with something like this. Uh, and ultimately, I guess the, it's the idea of the continuous flame that is most important uh, here. Uh, yeah. but, uh, but still, this is an example of one that has supposedly been burning for over a thousand years. Now, um, this is not quite a flame, but uh, I ran across this as well, and I thought I'd mention it just because it's amusing. And, and maybe we have some listeners who can, uh, who can report on this firsthand. Uh, but there is something known as the Centennial Light Bulb in Livermore, California, specifically in the, the firehouse there. It's been burning there, uh, the bulb, since 1901, uh, though this has Whoa. not been continuous. Uh, there have been power outages and electrical issues, etc. cetera. Uh, so I'm not sure exactly like what the ratio is between the, 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 the time during that century plus uh, that the light has been out versus on, but it's certainly a very old light bulb that still lights up and there is a webcam you can like check in on its status at centennialbulb.org so this is same filament no no replaced parts mm-hmm. it's the same bulb and it still works still works yeah uh and and you can go visit it like on the website it has uh, information about how you can uh, see this bulb for yourself that is very impressive because obviously this is not an LED bulb or something. This is mm-hmm. I mean, Lord knows how they were making light bulbs in 1901, but this was in some form an incandescent uh, filament-based light bulb. Yes. Now, now getting back to the idea of fire and technology, I w- I will say that uh, I I don't have an answer regarding things like pilot lights or you know forge fires, industrial flames. Um, so there might be a really good example out there that I just couldn't find of a of a you know verified long burning pilot light or long burning forge fire that sort of thing. But if listeners out there have uh, have have something to submit on that count, uh, let us have it. Yeah. Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples. Rob, as the uh, the local host with allergies here, they sent you some of their nasal spray to treat your allergies. What was your experience like? Yeah, that's right. I always wrestle with the pollen a bit when it rolls in during the spring. So they sent me the little uh, nasal spray. I tried out the product and yeah, it sure did help me get on top of my symptoms for the day. And it's so fast acting, uh, it was already kicking in before I left the house. Astapro is a first-of-its-kind nasal allergy spray. It's the fastest 24-hour over-the-counter allergy spray. It starts working in 30 minutes, while other allergy sprays take hours. Astapro is the first and only 24-hour steroid-free allergy spray. Astapro delivers full prescription-strength indoor and outdoor allergy relief from nasal congestion, runny and itchy nose, and sneezing. Get fast-acting nasal allergy symptom relief with Astapro. Go to astaproallergy.com for a discount so you can get Astapro and go today. A-S-T-E-P-R-O allergy.com. Astapro and go. Use this directed for relief of nasal congestion, runny nose, sneezing, and itchy nose due to allergies. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. 
No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or... I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones so we'll never lose touch with civilization and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Today I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm JB Smoove and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit att.com slash hypergig for details. So based on everything I've mentioned here, and then this very much reflects my mindset going into this, I was thinking, uh, um, you know, before we did any research, before you brought up the idea of the episode, I would have guessed, well, the longest raging fire, you know, maybe, may, maybe it, it's gone, uh, you know, a, a few weeks, a few months, and, uh, you know, if the conditions are just right. But beyond that, I mean, how, how long can a fire rage? Uh, Joe, would you like to get into uh, uh, one of the answers that, uh, that we're going to discuss in these episodes? Well, for the rest of the series, we wanted to talk about naturally fueled flames, flames that can burn for a long, long time because humans weren't even necessary to create them, uh, that they're in, they can arise in various ways. We're going to talk about some major categories, I think more in the next part of this series. But there are various kinds of, uh, of, of burning and ignition processes that it turns out have been going on on the surface of the earth for hundreds or even thousands of years. Which, of course, absolutely just dwarfs everything that, that, I've, yeah. that I've mentioned so far. It, it, it really puts things on an entirely different time scale. Right. So I, I wanted to talk in, uh, in this episode about uh, one example that really struck me when I was reading up for this that's sort of an odd man out. It, it's not exactly uh, fitting into the other categories that we're going to be talking about in part two. So I, I figured it'd be good to start with this one. So in the Northwest Territories of Canada, there is a stretch of seaside cliff faces and hills 
along the eastern coast of a place called Cape Bathurst, where the earth and the rocks themselves seem to be perpetually burning. And they have been that way probably for thousands of years. In English, this place is known as the Smoking Hills or sometimes the Smoky Mountains, not to be confused with the ones in uh, along the Tennessee-North Carolina border. Mm. Different Smoky Mountains, uh, literally smoking in this case. But in the language of the Inuvialuit, and these are the, the people native to the Western Canadian Arctic region, it is known as Ingenirjuat, which means big fire. And I was poking around for good historical resources on this place. A lot of the articles I dug up actually seemed rather confused, offering contradictory details about early observations. So the best thing I found was a piece in a magazine called Tusayaksat, which is a publication devoted to the language, culture, and history of the Inuvialuit. This article is by Charles Arnold, and it's called Ingnirjuat, the Smoking Hills of Franklin Bay. So Arnold identifies the earliest written account of the Smoking Hills as one tracing back to a Scottish naturalist, explorer, and naval surgeon named Sir John Richardson, who wrote about the hills in the 1820s while documenting an expedition that he made to chart the coastlines of northern Canada. And as a side note, this mission was actually organized in cooperation with another Arctic explorer, Sir John Franklin, who uh, many years later in 1845 would head up the infamous Lost Franklin Expedition, the goal of which was to fully chart a northwest sea passage through Canada. They were hoping to find a way to get around the, the northern part of the continent by water. Uh, obviously, this is even though, you know, if you look at a map, you'll see a lot of gaps between the islands of northern Canada. This is more difficult than it might sound because often these waterways are, are choked with ice. So when Franklin got lost in the 1840s, he, he was trying to find this Northwest Passage. And if you want to know more, you, you can look up what's uh, known and unknown about the voyage of the HMS Terror and the HMS Erebus. Uh, if you want some good hair-raising mystery with hints of cannibalism. Yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a fabulous story. Um uh, you know, what we've been able to piece together over the years through, you know, the original history and then the, the finding of the, the wreckage and so forth. Uh, Dan Simons wrote a fictional take on the terror and the Erebus titled The Terror, uh, which was a brick of a book that was then made into uh, an excellent AMC miniseries a few years back. Uh, in this, Franklin is played by the actor Kieran Hines. Uh, but uh, I highly recommend this series. It's a wonderful mix of detailed historic depiction uh, as well as fantasy and horror. Uh, Jared Harris and Tobias Menzies also star in that. Uh, it's really good. Rob, can you do a, a short version of what we actually do know about the, the, the Lost Franklin expedition? Well, uh, I, there's a killer monster that shows up. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, that's the, that's the, that's the, the miniseries I'm thinking of. Um, I mean, it's really, really a story we could get into the full episodes, uh, really. But, uh, but basically, you had these two vessels that were that were seeking the, the Northwest Passage, and they went missing. And the, and you you get into like what happened to the crew, like how long were they marooned out there in the ice? You know, their ships locked in, frozen in. Uh, where did where did they get to? Did anybody actually you know make it out? It's presumed, I think, still that they they all died. But uh, you know, there's a lot of um, there's been a lot of analysis uh, over the years about uh, you know what happened to them, and then and then later on we we actually found the wreckages. 
there's a famous painting I think that has to do with this uh, with the this lost voyage called it's got a really metal album name it's called something like man proposes god disposes or something hmm. um and it's the painting is just of polar bears fighting over scraps of the wreckage yeah yeah for the for the longest the the wreckage was 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 just lost entirely but it was yeah 2014 uh, in september of 2014 an expedition by parks canada discovered first the erebus and then two years later they found the terror as well well, anyway, coming back to the story, sorry. Uh, so Dr. John Richardson, the, the author of the account I'm about to cite, was not involved in the Lost Expedition. No. Uh, he, he just was an early collaborator with Franklin. So uh, d- turning back to his survey several decades earlier, in traveling along the shore of the place that would come to be known as Franklin Bay, Richardson made some observations of something marvelous, cliffs that themselves appeared to be, quote, on fire, giving out smoke, and where the ground appeared to consist of, quote, burnt clays, variously colored, yellow, white, and deep red. I found another source uh, quoting one of Richardson's accounts where he says, uh, quote, at Cape Bathurst, the northern end of Franklin Bay, bituminous shale is exposed in many places, and in my visit there in 1826 was in a state of ignition, and the clays which had been thus exposed to the heat were baked and vitrified, so that the spot resembled an old brick field. And I will say I understand what Richard is is getting at here. Of course, brick fields are places where bricks are manufactured. You can look these up on the internet, and you can see the resemblance with the, the unnatural look of the baked earth. But when I look at pictures of the Smoking Hills, my computer-ruined brain sees these landscapes, and unfortunately, the first place it goes is that it looks like a level in doom. Yeah, yeah it does. Um, it, it also, I have to say, it, it looks kind of delicious. Like, I'm also reminded of, I don't know, like red velvet cake. It's like red velvet <laughs> cake emerging from the earth. Yeah, yeah. And it, it's very interesting the way they produce these protruding rock formations they're very jagged uh and they they seem to be rather resistant to weathering compared to the the unbaked rock all around them which is more Mm -hmm. smoothed over yeah very jagged very and very bloody looking in some cases so yeah it looks like some sort of rock formation that is just uh, gouged into the flesh of a titan Totally. So that's what Richardson saw in the 1820s. He says, hey, we, you know, we went past these cliffs. They appeared to be on fire. They're giving off smoke. We see a lot of burnt clay. It's yellow, white, and deep red. Very weird. Looks like an old brick field. But then the written history of the Smoking Hills continues after the disappearance of the Franklin expedition in the 1840s. So Franklin, uh, the two ships, Franklin and the crews go missing. And in the year 1850, a ship called the HMS Investigator under the command of Captain Robert McClure was searching for survivors of the Franklin party in the area around Franklin Bay. Once again, when the uh, crew of this ship came across the same weird site cliffs by the sea that were strangely covered and were giving off plumes of smoke. And at first they thought that these might be campfires or signals from the Franklin survivors. So they sent out a small boat to check it out, see what's going on. But no, it was not survivors of the Franklin mission. Uh, Arnold, in his article, identifies testimony left by a Moravian missionary named Johann Mirching, 
who was a member of the shore party. And uh, this is one where I really wanted to find the original text, but I don't, I can't, if this has been digitized anywhere, I could not find it. It appears to be from uh, what's called the Arctic diary of Johann Mirching, 1850 to 1854. Uh, that was, uh, was published in print form in Toronto in 1967. Uh, but, uh, but I couldn't find the digital version. So I'm, I'm relying on Arnold's summaries of, of what Mirching says, but he says that uh, when they got to the source of the smoke, they found no human life, alive or dead, only, quote, a thick smoke emerging from various vents in the ground and a smell of sulfur so strong that we could not approach the smoke pillar nearer than 10 or 15 feet. Flame there was none, but the ground was so hot that it scorched the soles of our feet. Arnold says that Mirching compared the landscape to a huge chemical factory. He says that water from nearby ponds had been fouled by something from the earth and that it uh, that the water tasted sour. And they brought back samples of rocks from the smoking hills, brought them back to the ship where he uh, Mirching apparently claims that they ended up burning a hole in the mahogany table where Captain McClure kept them. So they took some rocks back to the captain and they're burning up his furniture. You know, this this reminds me again of um, of the, the the miniseries of the terror because one of the things that they they stress in that show and uh, and uh, they have some of the, uh, the the people involved in the production that, that mentioned this as well. They mentioned that when they were researching the ships to portray them on the show, uh, there was this uh, dis- this realization that you know these were some of the most advanced uh, vessels of any kind of that time period, and if we were to compare them. Uh, to uh, to our modern world, we might well compare them to spaceships. We might well think of them in terms of of, of something that is meant to to venture beyond our atmosphere. Um, and and here we have one of the, and and, uh, and specifically this was referring to the the terror and the Erebus. I'm not quite sure about the investigator, but I'm assuming that it that it may have been a similar uh, in a similar fashion may have been a very advanced ship. Uh-huh. Um, but but here they are with the ship essentially arriving at an alien landscape. You know, it must have just been such a, a, a strange sight to behold. Here you are on uh, this you know this far flung and, and ultimately very very hostile, very dangerous environment. And here here are shores where things are are bloody and burning, and it's like a chemical vat. Uh, you bring a piece of it inside the ship, and it begins to burn a hole through the the, the table in front of you. It's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like feels like or looks like the set of wheels in your garage with over 122 million parts you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it brake kits turbochargers engines exhaust kits roof racks led headlights bumpers whatever your baby needs ebay motors has it and with ebay guaranteed fit it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time every time or your money back Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Okay, picture this. 
It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai. There's joy in every journey. Today I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm JB Smooth, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at slash hypergig for details. Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There's still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI, and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI in revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So here, I guess we come to the question of what is actually causing these hills to smoke. You might assume, uh, based on background knowledge, that, well, okay, if there's heat and sulfurous gas coming out of the ground, the source is volcanic, right? That, that would be the, the obvious mm-hmm. assumption. Yeah, that's, that's where your mind instantly goes. Yeah, But in this case, no. Uh, I found one source on this that, that was pretty helpful. It was a paper called, Why Do the Smoking Hills Smoke? <laughs> <laughs> Why? Um, It was published in the Canadian Journal of Earth Sciences in 1984 by W.H. Matthews and R.M. Buston. And this paper invokes a term that I'd never heard before. It refers to areas of fire-baked rock as, um, I think this word is French, so I think it would be pronounced bocan, but it's B-O-C-A-N-N-E-S. Hmm. And the authors write that you find these these fire-baked rocks in, quote, Cretaceous mudstones along sea cliffs and in areas of recent slumping. 
So the fire baking of the rocks and the earth lead to these weird patterns of coloration that can easily be seen with the naked eye and that we heard described in the literary sources we just mentioned. So these color changes include bleaching and reddening of the mudstone, which is otherwise dark in color. And these colors can remain even after one of the bokans has stopped burning. And in uh, places where these rocks are still burning and baking, you get smoke pouring out, you get sulfurous fumes, as well as high ground temperatures. So the, the earth you walk on gets hot. So what's the cause? Well, the authors of this paper, they performed a number of different analyses, including petrographic, uh, mineralogical, chemical, and calorific uh, analyses. And they determined that, quote, the Bokan are fumed by oxidation of pyrite and or organic matter. With heating of the strata by oxidation, combustible gases are driven off that may burn in restricted areas, resulting in localized melting of the strata. Uh, so in reading this and a few other sources and putting things together, I, I think I understand this now and trying to put m my understanding into other words. A lot of the rock in this area is mudstone or, or a type of shale rock. Uh, mudstone is a sedimentary rock that can contain hydrocarbon or organic content. So some amount of fossil fuel is naturally present in this rock, even if in low concentrations. And in this case, one of the main carbon constituents seems to be a form of lignite, which is a soft brown type of coal that is generally formed by the underground compression of peat. But this rock also contains a significant amount of iron pyrite, a, a mineral form of, uh, of iron sulfide, which um, is also known as fool's gold. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, it's, I think it's always a shame we call it fool's gold because it implies that it's, to a certain extent, that it's ugly and it's without value. But uh, <laughs> pyrite can, can look quite impressive. Uh, you know, I've, I've seen examples of it in, um, uh, in mineral museums before. Uh, and, uh, and of course, in the fact that it can be used um, uh, to ignite something, uh, I believe it was used in uh, in firearms uh, in the past. Um, hmm. I did not know that, but that would make sense now uh, mm -hmm. reading about this. Because so, so, so what's going on here is that um, when the cliff faces erode here at, at the Smoking Hills and new faces of the mudstone strata are exposed to oxygen in the atmosphere – the carbon-based fuel and the natural iron pyrite uh, together undergo oxidation, a chemical reaction which leads to heating. The, the oxidation of the iron pyrite here is an exothermic reaction. It heats up the, the surrounding rock. And this oxidation-based heating leads to the release of flammable gases that are embedded in the rock. And so the authors think when these gases are released, they they become a form of fuel evaporating in an environment of extreme heat with exposure to oxygen. So here you have the three magic ingredients, right? You have fuel escaping, you have, it's very hot and you have oxygen nearby. So they burn and these fires further heat and melt the strata of the rock. And I believe the implication is that this melting, uh, this melting and baking helps continue to reveal new faces of strata to the atmosphere so that more oxidation can happen and the process can just continue. It's auto-ignition. It ignites automatically by being exposed to the oxygen and the process is self-sustaining. 
The authors write that you tend to find these bokan only in places where the strata of sedimentary rock has been suddenly exposed to the atmosphere, maybe by a landslide or some other form of erosion or erosion uh, that's left behind after the retreat of glaciers. Now, coming back to these historical accounts, while the stories from Richardson and the McClure expedition are the earliest written accounts of the Smoking Hills, uh, Inuvialuit oral traditions about the mountains have been in circulation for much longer. Uh, as I mentioned, the, the traditional name for this place is uh, Ingniriwat, which means big fire. And this article by Charles Arnold, then uh, after it recounts the, uh, the, the literary section, it goes into a section on the oral tradition, including one excellent story that was told to the Danish anthropologist Knud Rasmussen in 1924 by a person living in the Cape Bathurst area named Aunaritsaik. So this is the story told by uh, Aunaritsaik, re- recounted to Rasmussen and, and quoted in Arnold here. In the early infancy of man, people were never alone, whether they lived in a settlement or were traveling on long journeys. They were surrounded by a spirit people who lived as human beings and were, in fact, human beings, except that they were invisible. Their bodies were not for our eyes or their voices for our ears. And when people traveled and pitched camp and began to build their snow huts, one might see round about the snowdrifts that the snow blocks began to move, being lifted out of the drifts, and piled together into a snow house which seemed to grow of itself. Occasionally one might see the glitter of a copper knife, and that was all. They did not mind people coming into their houses, which were arranged just like those of human beings. All their belongings were visible, and people could trade with them very profitably. If one wished to buy something, all that was necessary was to point to it, and at the same time, show what one was prepared to give for it. If the spirit people agreed, the object required lifted itself up and moved towards the man who wanted it. But if they declined the bargain, the object remained where it was. So people were never alone. They always had small, silent, and invisible spirits around them. But one day it happened that, during a halt, a man seized his knife and cried, What do we want with these people who are always right on our heels? Saying this, he flourished his knife in the air and thrust it in the direction of the snow huts that had made themselves. Not a sound was heard, but the knife was covered in blood. From that moment the spirits went away. Never again did anyone see the wondrous sight of snowdrifts forming themselves into snow huts when one made camp, and forever the people lost their silent, invisible guardian spirits. It was said that they had gone to live inside the mountains in order to hide from man who had mocked and wounded their feelings. That is why, to this day, one can see the mountains smoking from the enormous cooking fires flaming inside them. Oh, wow, that's wonderful. Yeah, I, I thought this was beautiful. It also made me so sad that like the humans betrayed their their invisible companions. Yeah, yeah, and uh, but it, it also, of course, reminds me of uh, of, of various other accounts that you see, particularly uh, like Irish traditions, where you have uh, the, these traditions of the pr- the former people or other other intelligent beings, be they some sort of spirit folk or or, or what have you, or something very humanoid in form, and they've been driven into the earth. Uh, by the newer people, and we see a similar trend here. Yeah, yeah. Arnold cites stories remembered by other Inuvialuit people uh, uh, of the present, 
describing their their memories of the stories about these people, uh, describing the smoke from the hills as the cooking fires of the little people who live mm. inside the mountains. And there was one uh, story he recorded that really struck me. This was wonderful. Uh, this was quoting uh, a source named Fred Wolke, who said, quote, they are as big as a fork that you eat with. They use a caribou's ear for a parka. They turn it inside out and they just have to put it on. Just take the inside off, skin it, a ready-made parka. Oh, wow. One thing that strikes me as interesting is how uh, there's a convergence on everyone identifying in some way the Smoking Hills or uh, Ingniriwat as as artificial in nature. So in in these oral traditions, the smoke coming off of the hills or the cooking fires of the little people or the invisible people living inside the mountain – but uh, also some of the earliest written records like uh, uh, Mirching's uh, compared the, the area to a huge chemical factory. Richard compared it to a brick field. Both of these are products of human industry. It's yeah. interesting that, that everybody uh, seems to look at these things and think artificial, made by people. Yeah, I mean, we just as, as Earth is the, the fire planet, like we are the people of fire. We are the only organism that, uh, that has come to master it. And, uh, and and created works with it. So uh, yeah, it it, it it makes sense that, uh, that that various cultures would look to this, and their mind would at least temporarily go in the same direction. In any case, coming back to the question about some of the longest burning fires, um, I guess part of this would be dependent on what you're what you're counting as a fire when you look at something. So like, uh, I think the Smoking Hills, you will often not. I mean, some, maybe sometimes you will, but you will often not be seeing big gouts of flames like you would see at a, at a campfire. You'll just see this continuous smoking and baking of the rock. And so the, the burning there, I think, would be more akin to what you'd see probably with like a, a, a burning coal, you know, a piece of coal yeah. that has been ignited. But considering that, we we can know for pretty sure that the smoking hills have probably been burning for hundreds or thousands of years and there are multiple ways you can know this i think there are some geological methods but i actually came across one study offering one interesting piece of evidence uh, for how long these hills had been burning that uh, i wouldn't have thought of which is archaeology so there was a paper by raymond j leblanc in american antiquity in 1991 called prehistoric clinker use on the Cape Bathurst Peninsula, Northwest Territories, Canada, the dynamics of formation and procurement. And talking about the background going into this study, uh, LeBlanc says, quote, fieldwork conducted on the Cape Bathurst Peninsula, and that's where the Smoking Hills are, um, has resulted in the discovery of 75 sites representing occupation spanning more than 3,000 years. Nearly all of these sites are characterized by the predominant use of a distinctive rock called a clinker. Resembling a basalt to obsidian-like material, it is formed by the spontaneous combustion of local organic-rich shales. So, some of the, the weird baked rocks left over at these auto-ignition sites, like Ingniriwat, uh, these rocks have been used to make tools by the people living in the area spanning back thousands of years. And I, I found that so interesting, too, that you would take these these strange clinker rocks and, and turn them into technology. 
Yeah, yeah. From this from from this site that we interpret through the the lens of fire technology. Interesting. Now, one more paper I wanted to mention before I'm I'm done with the Smoking Hills is by uh, Magda Havas and Thomas C. Hutchinson, uh, published in Nature in 1983, called "The Smoking Hills: Natural Acidification of an Aquatic Ecosystem." So you remember how those early reports of of the area uh, report uh, they said that the water of nearby ponds was foul and sour. Mm-hmm. Well, we know why that happens now. This is due to the acidification of the water by the sulfur dioxide produced by these mineral burning sites. So the water is very acidic, and this has actually changed the composition of the local microbial life and and insect life and stuff. The life that inhabits the area. So the authors here write, quote, in an area of typically alkaline ponds with pH above 8.0, ponds within the fumigation zone have been acidified below a pH of 2.0. Elevated concentrations of metals, including aluminum, iron, zinc, nickel, manganese, and cadmium, occur in these acidic ponds. Soils and sediments have also been chemically altered. The biota in these acidic ponds are characteristic of acidic environments worldwide, in contrast to the typically Arctic biota in adjacent alkaline ponds. So the burning of the earth alters the chemical characteristics of the landscape, which in turn change the bioecology. The the chain reaction started thousands of years ago when these cliff faces and rocks were eroded and uh, exposed the the minerals to oxygen. The oxidation of the pyrite and the organic contents of the mudstone and the burning began, and this led to, over the thousands of years, a complete transformation of the surrounding ecosystem into one of these uh, strange extremophile acid-rich uh, biosystems. Wow, that's impressive. Um you know, and, and in thinking about this, and thinking about you know extreme environments and uh, and uh, and so forth, and and also kind of going back to the idea of these uh, these 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 ships being sort of like spaceships uh, sailing upon these uh, this strange alien uh, seeming environment, I I ran across a a twenty twenty two paper in Chemical Geology, the journal Chemical Geology by Graspi et al that looked at the Smoking Hills as a possible analog for some geological conditions that have been observed on Mars. Mm. Um, uh, Just to read a quick quote, um, oxidative weathering of this unit creates extensive gerocyte-rich deposits and banded gerocyte and phyllosilicate-rich mudstones similar to those observed on Mars. So, uh, I I read through this paper here, and it's, it's, and it's pretty pretty deeply uh it's a chemical geology journal so it's yeah <laughs> it's a bit dense uh for, for my taste anyway but the authors if i'm understanding this correctly they're, they're suggesting that such signs on mars some some similar looking uh details that we've observed on mars uh via the probes we've sent there uh, if we interpret them through the lens of the smoking hills it could possibly suggest a more habitable period in mars ancient past uh, so uh, fascinating to think about that as well. Absolutely. So I think maybe this is where we need to cap it for part one here, but uh, there's so much more to talk about because the world is full of surprising and fascinating naturally fueled flames. And I think it will make for a, a carnival of geological wonders to to explore in, in the next part of this series. That's right. So tune in on Thursday as we continue with more Fire from the Rocks. 
In the meantime, if you'd like to check out other episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, you can find them on Tuesdays and Thursdays in the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed. Um, I think most of the invention episodes that we recorded, several of which dealt with fire technology and fire-related technology, uh, I think most of those have been republished. If not, all of them have been republished in this feed. But if not, you can also find the the podcast feed for Invention out there. Um, that was a, a, a fun, though short-lived show that we did on the side dealing with inventions. Um, in the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed, though, we also do listener mail on Mondays. We do a uh, short-form artifact or monster fact on Wednesdays. And on Friday, we do something called Weird House Cinema. That's our time to set aside most serious concerns and just talk about a strange film. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. The future of wireless is here, and it's transparent. Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon. Just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. No hidden fees, no surprises, no, really. What are you waiting for? Get with the times and switch to Visible at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Rev up your thrills this summer at Cedar Point on the all-new Top Thrill 2. Drive the sky on the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch vertical speedway. And now, for a limited time, get more Cedar Point fun for less with our limited-time bundle for just $49.99. Get admission, parking, and all-day drinks for one low price. But you better hurry, because this bundle won't last long. Save now at cedarpoint.com. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. We are the voice of NASCAR. The green flag is in the air, and we are underway. The great American race. The Motor Racing Network. NASCAR Cup, Xfinity, and Craftsman Truck Series Racing. Live on your hometown radio station and MRN or NASCAR.com. Martinsville, Talladega, the Chicago Street Course. We have the side-by-side action, and last lap passes for the win. Photo finishes. Ryan Blaney will win. The voice of NASCAR, the Motor Racing Network work.